I want to uh, kick us off this morning and introduce our guest speaker who's in the house. Uh, he's the executive pastor of New Life Downtown, uh, and he is joining us this morning for New Life Young Adults to continue our series on the Old Testament, and his name is Jason Jackson. Everybody make some noise as we welcome Jason Jackson to share with us this morning. Is that on? Hey, good morning, everybody. Sorry, I forgot to turn the mic on. That's always an important thing to remember. It is great to be here. Uh, I was telling Josh on the way that uh, this morning, this is actually my first time at New Life North since like early 2000s. Uh, so I joined the staff at New Life Downtown about 18 months ago. Uh, but being on staff at New Life Downtown means you're not here on Sunday mornings. You're downtown on Sunday mornings. So it's great to uh, be up here with you all. Uh, well, let me tell you just a little bit about myself, and then we'll dive into uh, today's topic. Uh, so I was born in a small like farming community in northern Iowa in a non-Christian kind of environment at home. I became a follower of Jesus in high school kind of at the end of my sophomore year, and really didn't get connected to church until the end of my junior year in high school. Uh, ended up kind of sensing a call to ministry around that point. I think this is echoing a little bit. I'm going to step back uh, some here. And uh, ended up at Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, Oklahoma for my uh, undergraduate degree. I was there uh, in 97 to 2001. It's kind of when I was at ORU. While I was there, I became a youth pastor at a church plant at the age of 19 which is dumb. I've been a Christian for like three years, and I get this church plant was desperately needing help in the youth department. Uh, so I ended up uh, serving as a youth pastor there for about eight years, uh, and then uh, got married while I was there, and we moved off uh, to Kentucky, uh, where I went to Asbury Theological Seminary. Uh, and the reason I ended up going to a seminary is because I found... Uh, couple of things were true for me. One, not growing up in the church, I was always that person sitting in church services over and over and over again where someone would say, oh, and you all know the story? And I'd look around, and like everybody's nodding. And I'm going, no, I don't know what you're talking about at all. So I had sort of no biblical knowledge, foundation, any of those things kind of coming in to student ministry. And then the longer I was in student ministry, the, the more I felt it was important to actually read the Bible with high school students uh, and found that they had more questions than I could even attempt to answer kind of the middle thing. So they would, we'd be in this discussion about Bible study things, and they'd start peppering me with questions. And then I'd go, okay, I'll come back next week. And I'd go and I'd try to do whatever research that I could uh, and come back with some sort of response in the middle. This is fantastic. But over the course of that time, I felt this deep, deep, deep need to go back for more schooling. Uh, so I ended up going to seminary in Kentucky, particularly because I wanted more than anything else to study the Old Testament. Because uh, anytime I was trying to research or study something in the New Testament, and I'd come across readings, they'd say, okay, this is coming from here, this is coming from here, this is coming from here. And finding over and over again that it was the Old Testament that helped me understand the New Testament. Uh, so I went uh, to Asbury Seminary, ended up doing two degrees there. I did a master's in biblical studies and a master's in theological studies, emphasized in Old Testament, kind of then in Christian practices. Christian ethics, and then of all the nerdy things that you can do with your life, I taught biblical Hebrew for the next five years, uh, and then was uh, teaching pastor at a church plant in Lexington, Kentucky. Uh, while we were there, my wife and I started having kids. We've got three kiddos. Uh, my oldest daughter turned nine yesterday. 
my middle daughter turned six last Wednesday. Uh, of course, we had Mother's Day the previous Sunday, and then my wife's birthday is next week. Uh, so I'm broke <laughs> at this point. Uh, and then my youngest daughter will turn four in June. So we've got three little kids. Uh, we were in Kentucky until 2014. I uh, took a job back in Tulsa at a different church. I uh, was there for a couple of years and then got a call from Pastor Glenn uh, and asked me if I would come consider coming and joining the team uh, at New Life Downtown. So we've been up here since January of 2017, uh, so for about a year and a half, and love, love, love living in Colorado Springs. Uh, compared to Tulsa, Oklahoma, Colorado Springs is a huge upgrade. Uh, compared to rural Iowa, it's like not even on the same planet in terms of uh, what that looks like. So Josh asked me to come in and talk kind of out of one of my really, really, really deep passions is how do we read the Old Testament as narrative? How do we read the Old Testament as a story? How do we read and engage the Old Testament in a way that actually makes sense? Because I think uh, for many of us, there's a sense that the Old Testament maybe at best is a collection of random stories that we heard at some point along the way, uh, especially if you grew up in church and you had a kid's Bible. You know, they sort of jump from a conversation about Joseph's coat to David and a giant to something else, and then you have these scattered stories kind of somewhere around, and then that was the last time you read the Old Testament. <laughs> It was kind of in that time period. It's like, what do we do with this? Um, because even saying the topic, we're going to talk about reading the Old Testament narratively, presumes that the Old Testament is a story. Presumes that there is a story that's being told within it, not just a collection of stories, but there is actually a story kind of being told in the middle of it. But we have to recognize as we have those conversations that the Bible itself is not a typical book right? The Bible itself is not a typical book. It's not like picking up, you know, the sorcerer's stone and just like starting to read. Uh, I mean, you got the two-column thing, which to begin with is a little bit odd, and so many other kind of pieces in there. In fact, it's probably best to understand the Bible not as a book, but as a collection of books. The Bible as an ancient library, it's an ancient library from a particular group of people living at a particular time and place in history. And that we have this collection of books that's been gathered around their story. It's 66 books, uh, depending upon which numbering system you use, written by over 40 different authors in three different languages across a at least 1,500-year period of time. In the middle of that, we have all sorts of different genres of literature we have different things that are happening, different settings, different people, different places, different events that are all being discussed in here. So even in terms of a library, it's kind of a unique library because uh, it's not just a collection of books from everywhere. It's a collection of books from somewhere, and it's a collection of books from some people, but over a long period of their time in history together. And then not only that, but it's a library about particularly their interaction with God. It's not just a collection of books that they just wrote for fun but a, a written collection of their record and their interaction with God in the midst of history. There were then all these books were composed and collected and arranged and sort of set and then handed down from generation to generation to us. But overall, we can say that there is a, a sense that the Bible is a story. And I want to say that if we had to say, well, what's the story about? 
What is the story of the Bible really about? I would propose that I think the story of the Bible is the story about God's kingdom. That if we had to look for a theme to hold the Bible together, both old and new, Genesis to Revelation, if we had to find a way to connect all of this together, I would say that the Bible is a story about God's kingdom. But kingdom is a weird word. Because we use it all the time, we have no clue what we're talking about. (laughs) Right? I remember like being in those places of going, people continuing talking, God's kingdom, God's kingdom, God's kingdom. Like, what are they talking about? Like, the closest example we have is David Leal on his couch watching the royal wedding. Right? (laughs) That's our picture. (laughs) Right? It's Harry in a Jaguar driving away and going, okay, we, we, if anything, have an unusual relationship with kingdom in the United States. We're sort of fascinated with royals. Um, but we're really glad that we had the Boston Tea Party. Um, so we're, we're a little bit kind of living in this strange space with kingdom. Uh, but if we were to think about it, if we were to boil it down and say, what is a kingdom? What does every kingdom have to have in order to actually be called a kingdom? For something to be really, truly a kingdom, what elements or what pieces have to be in place? And I would say that every kingdom has to have these things. You can't have a kingdom without a ruler, right? You have to have a king or a queen. There has to be people, right? It's a really poor kingdom if there's just a king, right? And no subjects or citizens, right? So you've got a ruler, you've got people. Those people necessarily have to have a place to live, right? A kingdom has a geographic sphere to it. The kingdom is a place. So you have a ruler, you have citizens, you have place, and then you have some sort of law, right? Otherwise, you just have anarchy and chaos, and you don't actually have a kingdom at that point. If the king or queen is not actually ruling in some way and setting up a framework for what life looks like in this place among these people, then it's not actually a kingdom. So you like, things like moats and roundtables are optional, but these things are not. This is what a kingdom consists of. And I think we can actually say the same thing for God's kingdom, That when we're talking about God's kingdom, this is what we're talking about. That we can define God's kingdom this way. That God's kingdom is about God's people living in God's place under God's rule and in God's presence. That when we're talking about the kingdom of God, we're talking about these people or these these situations. God's people living in God's place, the geographic sphere, under God's rule But in God's presence, that the king is actually present among them. It's not just a a distant, unknown, unheard of, unexperienced king, but a king that's actually living in their midst. That this is fundamentally what God's kingdom is about. God's people living in God's place, under God's rule, and in God's presence. And I would say the story of the Bible from beginning to end is about God's kingdom. And what happens with God's kingdom and God's people? The story begins in a garden, right? Where God's people are living in God's place, under God's rule, and in God's presence as he comes and he walks with them in the cool of the day. And then what happens? They don't trip and fall. They create a coup d'etat. They try to take over and become king themselves, right? They rebel against God. 
and God's people are exiled from God's place. They have to leave the garden. And then we go to the very end of the book. We go to Revelation. We see, I saw a new heaven and a new earth coming down out of, out of heaven. And, it, and God says, and behold, I am making my home with you again. That it's God's people living in God's place, under God's rule, and in God's presence. That this is what the story is about from beginning to end. Every kingdom must have those things. And so when we think about this, though, there's another piece that we have to hold in place in order to be able to understand how we read the Old Testament. And that is the Old Testament in particular and New Testament together. This is a story about God's kingdom. But the story of God's kingdom is held together in a very particular way. It's held together by a series of covenants. That the, king, the story of God's kingdom is held together by a series of covenants. Now, covenant is like the word kingdom. We use it all the time in church. And then if we were asked to define it, we go, uh, it's like a thing in the Bible, <laughs> right? It's something with God and people and Abraham had to do uncomfortable things. And, you know, and we're, not, we're not sure exactly what to do with all of this. Here's the major kind of key point in thinking through this. Covenant does not originate in the Bible. The idea of a covenant is actually comes to us from ancient Near Eastern political treaties. That's what a covenant is. A covenant is a political treaty that's founded and grounded in the ancient world that God then takes and uses to define his relationship with his people. That all throughout the ancient world we find Covenants are being made between nations. The covenants are being made. Treaties are being ratified. They're being written down and agreed upon and signed and sealed and delivered and the whole thing. We have multiple copies of them that archaeologists have found over the course of a long period of time in three different languages, and they have several kinds of things and common things about them. And we find those things being expressed in the scriptures. The covenant is the idea of an ancient political treaty. And we find that these political treaties, there were two types in the ancient world. There was what's called a parity treaty, P-A-R-I-T-Y. A parity treaty was a, a treaty between equals, a treaty between uh, two parties, two nations that were basically of the same strength, who said, hey, we're going to act like brothers with one another. We're going to act like siblings with one another. We're going to, through this treaty, create a kind of family-type relationship. So if anybody comes and beats you up, I'm going to come and protect you. And if anybody tries to beat me up, will you come and protect me as well? So it's oftentimes between smaller kingdoms getting together and saying, hey, let's band together against Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, these kind of big bullies on the block. And let's find a way to sort of help and protect one another from the deep threats within the empires of the world. The second type, the most common type, though, was called the Suzerain Vassal Treaty. Suzerain Vassal Treaty was a treaty between a great and powerful king, king of an empire, and the king of a lesser nation, a lesser empire, a lesser place in time. This is the most common. And what they would basically do is they would create a type of familial relationship as well, kind of relationship where the great king would become like a father, and the lesser king would become like a son. They would use this kind of language of family. And the, the, the uh, greater king would promise the lesser king, is promise the lesser king land, promise the lesser king protection, 
promised the lesser king these kinds of things that were necessary for thriving and survival in the ancient world. And in turn, the lesser king had to promise the greater king several things. Had to promise the king total and absolute allegiance. You shall have no other kings before me. You heard language like that before? Promises to give tribute, to give offering. Promises to participate in whatever plans are that that greater king has. To participate particularly militarily in the expansion of that king's kingdom. And God takes that idea and uses it to define and initiate his relationship with Israel. This is what he uses. And Israel would have picked up on it. They would have seen over and over and over and over again what God is doing. That God is creating a people for himself through covenant. And bringing people back into his kingdom through covenant. And using what they knew to be true to help initiate and define their relationship with him. So the Old Testament is actually held together by five of these. The first one that we have actually doesn't, the word covenant doesn't get used. But if we think about uh, Yahweh, the God of Israel, giving land to a group of people, the first time he does this is the garden. Right? Is there land grants being given? Adam is given a place to live. And so the first uh, covenant really comes to us in the person of Adam. The second one comes through Noah, right? And this is a recreation kind of idea that, that humanity has rebelled against God in such a way that he floods the earth, starts over, and creates a covenant with Noah. The third one is a covenant with Abraham, where God makes his covenant with this particular family. The fourth one is the God's covenant that he makes with all of Israel through Moses. And the fifth and final one is the covenant that he makes with David. And these five covenants actually form the backbone of the entire Old Testament story. That everything that God is doing in relationship to his kingdom, he's doing through covenants. He's doing it through these kinds of relationships with his people. All right, I'm going to stop there. I'm going to trace this out a little bit more in a moment. But I want to give you a chance to just kind of talk amongst your tables. And I'm going to walk around the room a little bit. And think through these questions. First question is this. Uh, they're coming up. There we go. How does this understanding of a covenant differ from your previous understanding? That maybe you've heard covenants talked about before, but thinking about covenants as a political treaty of God as a great king and his people as the citizens or subjects in his kingdom, how does that change your view kind of of covenants? And how might that idea that the Old Testament is held together by a series of five covenants, maybe shape and change the way that you might view or understand or read the Old Testament. All right, talk amongst your tables for, we'll do about 10 minutes, and then I'll come back up and kind of trace this out a little bit more. All right, well done, everybody. Hopefully those were good conversations, and hopefully they kind of left you with some tension uh, that we might be able to resolve as we kind of dive uh, into the next part. Uh, so two real key ideas, though, from the, from the first aspect. First is that the Bible is a story of what? God's kingdom, right? And then we define God's kingdom as God's people living in God's place, under God's rule, and in God's presence. So I want us to kind of keep those, particularly those four things in mind, right? God's people, God's place, God's rule, and God's presence. 
And then the idea of a covenant as being both something that holds the Old Testament and all of the scriptures actually together becomes sort of a, a backbone uh, for the narrative. But knowing particularly that this is a way uh, in which the ancient Israelites would have sort of understood, right? It's taking something from their culture, God using it to initiate and define their relationship. And we'll see how over and over and over and over again, God uses the idea of covenant to be able to bring his people into his kingdom and further his purposes, uh, that we'll continue to see what God is doing through that. So what I want to do next is I want to kind of walk through the Old Testament story big picture-wise, because to read the Bible narratively, to be able to particularly to read the Old Testament narratively, narratively, I think the key to it is, is that we need to follow the story of God's kingdom and covenants as we follow the story of Israel. That we need to think through, okay, the lenses of kingdom and covenant as we're reading through the story of Israel. And in doing that, if we take those kind of lenses and put them on, we start to see how these stories actually all come together. That they're not just this disparate sort of stories that were collected along the way, but they're actually the great story that God is telling about how he is bringing about his kingdom, how he's bringing his people into his place under his rule to enjoy him in his presence. And we see those kind of things going together. But as we think about the story of Israel, we can kind of think about the story of the Old Testament, the story of Israel this way. We're going to put an outline up here, uh, which will hopefully give us some kind of handles. There's a little bit more of a detailed outline in terms of some kind of major movements. But I want you to see several things as we kind of go along. So the very first thing is the Old Testament opens with the story of creation, right? That God creates everything, and he creates it as a beautiful and suitable inhabitation for his people. He really, he creates it as, uh, in all sorts of ways, as a temple, as a place where his presence can be, and his people can worship him. That we see that God's creating all of this as his kingdom and as his temple, as a place from which everything is as it's meant to be. He's with his people. Uh, They're in his place, and they're living under his rule, right? He invites them in, and he says, hey, you can eat from any tree of the garden. I give this whole place to you. Be fruitful, multiply, fill it, subdue it, work it, bring out all of creation's potential. This is, I'm giving this to you to steward over, to take care of. You are going to be sort of my vice regents, uh, my stewards of all of this place. I'm giving it to you as the great king who reigns over it all, who created it all, who's with you. Now go and work the land. Only one thing. Don't eat from that tree over there. And what do Adam and Eve do? They break covenant. They rebel against God's rule. Right? They fundamentally say, we do not want you to be king. We want to be king. They buy into several ideas about who God is from the serpent's temptation. And it says, if you eat from this, you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. You will be the one who determines what's right and wrong, good and evil. You will be the ones who get to decide all of these things rather than God. And so they reach and they try to take what ultimately belonged to God. They rebel against him. As a result, they're exiled from the space of God and in a real way from the presence of God. 
We see that the Adam and Eve are put in the garden to protect it. It's one of the words that gets used that they're supposed to protect the garden. And at the end of Genesis 3, at the end of the rebellion, they're sent out of the Garden of Eden, and cherubim are set up to protect his entrance from humanity. It's a crushing defeat, a crushing blow to what's happened to God's kingdom. And as the story goes on, things just get worse, right? They go from their rebellion in the garden to uh, brother killing brother. And we see all of this evil beginning to develop into the place that God even uh, wishes that he hadn't created humanity. That their rebellion, those who were entrusted with God's kingdom, who were entrusted with God's space in particular, had become so rebellious that the, that the creation itself has become infected with their evil and their violence. And so God regrets even making humanity, and he decides to recreate everything. And so the separation of the waters that happened at the beginning of Genesis are undone in the flood story. But God makes, uh, shows his grace, makes a covenant with Noah, preserves humanity, and then gives humanity another commission through Noah, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it to actually be what God intended to be. And then what happens, though, after God recreates that as soon as Noah gets off the boat, we've got problems, right? If you follow along with the story, Noah ends up drunk and passed out, and he gets shamed by his siblings, and we see rebellion continuing, increasing, to the point we get to Genesis chapter 11, and we see humanity's pride and rebellion at its highest. As instead of being fruitful and multiplying, filling the earth, And doing the very thing that God commissioned them to do, they decide, hey, let's not be scattered around. Let's stay here in this one place. And rather than building a name for God and making God known to the entire creation, let's build something that will make a name for us. And they build a great tower of human pride, of human rebellion, of human superiority, showing themselves to be, we want to be the ones who reign and rule over this place, and God comes down and scatters them. The rebellion continues, and the problem is deep, and it's true, and it's embedded, and it's everywhere, and God says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to establish a covenant. I'm going to make a way for people to come back into my kingdom, and I'm going to start with a person named Abram, and his family, and I'm going to invite Abram to leave everything else behind, he and his wife Sarai, and I'm going to invite them to come and follow me, to go to the place that I will show them, the land that we end up being known as Canaan, which surprisingly in the description sounds a whole lot like Eden in the way that it gets described, God's place, right? God's people, And he says to Abram that I want you to do these things. I want you to be circumcised as a sign of the covenant, right? As a sign of kind of your loyalty and commitment to me. And I want you to walk before me and be blameless. God's reign, inviting somebody. And he says to Abram, but this is not just for you. That I am going to bless you. I'm going to give you a couple of things. First of all, I'm going to give you children. Because I want to take you and turn you into a nation. I'm going to give you land to live in. People, place, right? Walk before me and be blameless. Live in, under my reign and my rule. And it says, through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. 
But God says, okay, I'm going to start with this person, with his family. I'm going to turn them into a nation. And through them, I'm going to pull the whole world back into my kingdom. Through them, I'm going to bless all the nations, all the families of the earth. And so we see God makes, uh, starts his plan of redemption, starts that plan of redemption through Abram, who becomes Abraham and Sarah. And yet as the story goes on, we see that even in God's chosen people, in this chosen family, there's problems, right? Particularly there's parental favoritism, there's sibling rivalry, there's all sorts of things that are going on. And what ends up happening is that God's people end up having to leave the land that he had given them. Abraham goes to the land in which he was promised, the land of Canaan. They begin to settle there, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. We have problems amongst Jacob's siblings. They sell one of their brothers into slavery in Egypt. A famine hits the land, and all of God's family has to go to Egypt. They're now no longer in God's place. They're in exile, just like they were from the garden. Now they're in exile from the promised land. And they're there in slavery for several uh, generations in Egypt. That a king arises who doesn't know Jacob and forces them into labor. But eventually God hears the cries of his people and he sends someone named Moses to go and deliver God's people from Egypt. Right? And, but it's in Egypt that we actually see God's faithfulness taking place in one particular way. That it's in Egypt, that it's in exile, that God's people become a great nation. That what started with the little family of Abraham, they begin to actually be fruitful and multiply. That we see a large, burgeoning sort of nation, and then God sends Moses in, and he rescues them out, and he brings them to Mount Sinai, and now he makes a covenant with the entire nation. He creates another covenant. He issues through Moses. The central piece of that covenant is the Ten Commandments. The very first commandment being, you shall have no other gods before me. I will be your suzerain. You cannot have any other gods. You can have no other kings. And he says, this is what I've called you to be. I've called you to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. I want you to be my people. I'm going to take you into my place. At that point, it was the land of Canaan. I want you to live under my rule the Ten Commandments and all the other laws connected to it, and in my presence, which is why there are countless numbers of chapters developed, devoted to the tabernacle and the creation of a space amongst God's people where he might come and live and reign with them. And if you look at the description of the tabernacle, it sounds a whole lot like Eden. All of the imagery coming back together. God's saying, okay, here it is. So he does that. He faithfully brings his people into the land. He brings them into this place. They return, and they enter almost immediately into cycles of rebellion, right? The entire book of Judges. God's people rebel against God's rule. God sends an oppressor to come in to discipline them. They repent. They cry out to God. God sends a deliverer, a judge to come and rescue them. They, uh, he rescues them. They celebrate. They live faithfully for a little bit and then repeats and repeats and repeats and repeats. 
And the book of Judges ends with this very, very interesting kind of statement. Anybody know how the book of Judges ends? It says, everyone did what was right in their own eyes because there was no king in Israel. Interestingly, who was supposed to be their king? God. God was supposed to be their king, but they're living as if they have no king. In fact, the very next kind of thing that happens is we get to the end of this cycle, and the last judge comes up. His name is Samuel. And Samuel kind of lives a really faithful life, leading God's people. And as Samuel gets old in age, and his children are not as faithful as he is, the people of Israel come to Samuel, and they make a request. The request is, give us a king. Let us have a king that will reign over us. Samuel goes away upset, ticked off, brokenhearted, and goes and he prays to Yahweh and he says, God, what is going on with your people? And Yahweh responds to him and says, it is not, this is not against you. They have not rejected you. But no, they have rejected me as king over them ever since I brought them out of Egypt. They have not rejected you. They have rejected me as king over them ever since I brought them out of Egypt. It's not just Israel's story. That's our story, isn't it? How many times do we reject God's kingship, his reign, his rule over our lives? That passage in 1 Samuel, I think, is one of the most devastating passages in the Old Testament. And so God acquiesces. He says, go ahead and give them a king. But let them know that this is what a king is going to do. The king is going to take and 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 take. And what do Israel's kings do? They take and take and take and take and take. Even David. David, in the Hebrew, takes Bathsheba. Very intentionally shown that even David, the great king, shows himself to not be the great kind of king that Yahweh himself could be. So they make this request for them to have a human king over them. And the rest of the story becomes about those kings that we see first, the first king that's chosen is Saul. Saul very much looks the part, but fails in every way. From the descriptions that God says, okay, if you're going to have a king, then a king must be like this. That king should at least be submitted to my law and to my prophet. The king should rule you as under me. And Saul continually rebels against that. David comes on the scene next, proves himself to actually be a better king because though David has his failings, when confronted by the prophet, David repents. David shows himself to be the kind of king who actually wants God to be king, even in the midst of his own failings and struggles. And so we have a united kingdom. And at that point with David, David decides, hey, I want to go ahead and build Yahweh a house, a permanent house. Let's get him out of this tabernacle. Let's put his presence right in the center of the kingdom. Let's put his presence in Jerusalem in the capital city. And God says, no, 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 wait a minute, David. You're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you one. I'm going to turn you into a dynasty. That because you have shown yourself to be the kind of king who wants to rule Israel in a way that recognizes my kingship over them, I'll make a covenant with you, and it's on then your offspring from generation to generation to generation that the offspring of David will rule over this kingdom. So God makes a covenant with David. First with Adam, then with Noah, then with Abraham's family, then with the entire nation. And then he locates his kingdom with a particular king who's going to be that king 
that, that reigns and rules uh, over Israel, over God's people on his behalf. This is why it's so important that Jesus is the descendant of David. That God makes a promise that a descendant of David will always reign on the throne. And Jesus, being fully God and fully human, comes through David's line to reign over God's kingdom as God's representative, as God himself, proving himself to be faithful to his covenant that he made with David. Unfortunately, what ends up happening as the story goes on is that God's people continue to rebel against God's reign and God's rule. They're continuing to break his laws and his commandments. David's son Solomon uh, decides to go ahead and build the temple, but he does so in such a way that oppresses the northern kingdoms. So when his son Rehoboam comes on the scene, uh, the elders come to him and say, hey, you've got to relent a little bit on the northern kingdoms. We're going to have problems. He says, no, I'm going to work them harder. The northern kingdom rebels. Are the northern tribes rebel, they form their own kingdom. And the very first thing they do under their, uh, under their new king, Jeroboam I, the nation of Israel sets up two altars, one in Dan and one in Bethel, and install in there a golden calf. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make an, an idol in any image or form. The rebellion that they did at Sinai, now the northern kingdom does the northern kingdom has absolutely no good kings at any point in their history, and eventually they're destroyed and exiled into the far parts of the earth, never to actually be a nation again. The kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom, has a, uh, a king always in David's line, from one after another after another, but only a few of them are actually good kings, folks like Hezekiah. The rest of them do what is right in their own eyes rather than what's right in God's eyes. And eventually, they lose the temple and the land. God's people are no longer living in God's place because they refuse to live under God's rule. And they've been exiled not only from the land but from his presence. The temple has been destroyed. And the people are... Uh, the. Northern kingdom's destroyed, the southern kingdom's destroyed, and the southern kingdom is sent off into exile. And once again, they find themselves in this space where they have been pushed out. But just a few years later, God sends a foreign king in to defeat the Babylons, allows them to go back and return to the land. They rebuild the temple. So God's people are back in God's place. God's temple is there but there's an ongoing problem. They do not live under the reign of God. They live under the reign of a foreign empire. The God's people story from here then is a long story of political struggle. That first they live under the rule of the Persians. Then they, rule, then they live under the rule of the Greeks, under Alexander the Great. Then they, rule, or they, they live under the reign and rule of the Roman Empire that we see nation after nation after nation, and God's people are left in this long period of waiting, saying, God, when are you going to come and restore your kingdom? When will there be a descendant of David on the throne again? God, in which ways are you going to bring your people back into your place and under your rule and in your presence? God, what are you going to do? God, how are you going to do this? God, when is it going to happen? And God's people, in the meanwhile, come up with all sorts of ideas of how to make it happen, Right? The Pharisees, wanting God's kingdom to come, say, let's do it by having everybody obey the law perfectly. 
And if they do that, then God's kingdom will come. The Sadducees and the chief priests and the scribes, they say, no, 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 maybe this is just how God's going to do it, and let's just get along with whoever's ruling over us and make the best of it. Let's just collaborate. The zealots are like, no, you know what we need to do? We need to kick everybody else's tail and get them out of here. Let's fight for our freedom. Let's make God's kingdom come in by force and by violence. Let's make it happen our way. Instead, God sends a descendant of David through a virgin named Mary to a small town in the outskirts of Jerusalem. Sends, he comes himself. The form takes on the very nature of humanity. Jesus himself comes to be everything that Israel was supposed to be. He comes to be the one true king of David, the one true king over God's people. He comes to bring God's kingdom, to bring all God's people back into God's place, which is expanded to all of creation, to invite them back under his rule and his reign by showing them what the right way is to live. He makes it possible for that by sacrificing himself for their sins and sending his spirit that might transform and change us from the inside out so that we might actually live in a right way. This is Pentecost Sunday, the day that we celebrate that Jesus not only died and rose again and ascended, but he sent the spirit to come and change us, that we might actually live under God's reign and that God's presence might actually be with us. Jesus came to be with us and they sent his spirit to live in us that we might be a part of his kingdom. And he did that through a covenant. Through the covenant that the New Testament talks about, this is my body and my blood. The new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins so that God's people might come back into God's kingdom. That the whole earth might be God's place. That we might all live under God's reign as empowered by the Spirit. Then we might live in God's presence as he dwells with us. Amen. I went a little longer than I thought on that section. So wait, I have a question, but we may be out of time. You know, a, okay, let's do five minutes at your table. What time do we need to be out of here? 50? Okay, five minutes at your table. Here's the question. What part of Israel's story that has been the most confusing to you in the past? And how does this overview help you put it all together? Does this in any way help you kind of read the Bible as story? Five minutes, I'll walk around the room again, and then we'll let Josh close it up. All right, that was a fire hydrant of information. Uh, I realized that hopefully it was so helpful for you as you're kind of thinking through things. But I know like a lot of this is stuff that you might be thinking, hey, I need to like process through this a little bit more where I go to find some more information. So I want to show you just a couple of recommended resources really quickly. The first three are books. Uh, the, uh, this first book, The Epic of Eden by Sandra Richter, if I could recommend that you read any book at any point in time about the Old Testament, that would be the book that I would recommend. It's a Christian entry into the Old Testament. It goes through all of these things related to kingdom and covenant. Uh, talks a lot about culture, those things. It's incredibly helpful, very accessible, uh, very, like, a, it's, a, it's a pretty easy read in terms of tons of information, uh, but not overly academic. 
the next book, The Drama of Scripture, uh, are for, if you're wanting something that is a little bit more academic, a little hardier of a read, the drama of, scripture, the drama of Scripture gets into a little bit more of those things. Uh, but if you're a little bit more creative, like, I need to think about this kind of in some different ways, uh, in a more creative way. This book, The Story of God, The Story of Us by Sean Gladding, uh, takes the story of Israel and has it uh, sort of takes various points in Israel's story, kind of drops down, and has a character in Israel telling Israel's story. So at one point, you sort of find yourself in exile around a fire, and an elder is kind of sharing the story up to this point. So it's a really creative kind of retelling uh, of the story. It's beautiful. Uh, it kind of helps uh, put the story together. Uh, the last thing is, for those of you who are more visually oriented, uh, if you've never seen anything from the Bible Project, uh, the Bible Project uh, has incredible resources for kind of helping to see the story uh, and then how to understand every single book. Uh, so they've got these sort of maps that they draw out for every book on how that book flows and structures together. And then they've got one for the whole Old Testament, the whole New Testament. And they've got several videos on there that will talk about major themes that develop in the Bible, how they develop, and helping to kind of connect all the different pieces of the story together. It's fantastic. And then the last one is the Immerse Bible. Um, the Immerse Bible is attempting uh, to take all of the, f- the kind of things that we've put on the Bible that make it harder to read and pull those back out. Uh, so it's a Bible without chapter and verse numbers and uh, without two columns. Uh, and it's intended to read more like the books that we normally read and sort of helps highlight the fact of how this was originally intended to be read as a whole rather than as parts. Uh, and then they also have a podcast that actually has people reading through the entire Bible. And one of the things you can do in terms of reading the Bible narratively, it helps to just kind of immerse yourself in all of it. Uh, so they've got a podcast, reading plans, all those things uh, that are related to that. So I think any of those five things are a great next step for you as you keep thinking about uh, how to read the Old Testament as story. Josh. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Jason Jackson. Everybody, let's show some love one more time. Thank you, man. That was, that was great. Lots and lots and lots to chew on, I'm sure. Um, hey, as we wrap up real quick, again, we're not having service next week, but uh, because of that, I want to take just one minute of prayer right now. Uh, a number of you are going on missions this summer, whether through Crew, Micah, I know a couple of you guys are going to San Diego for missions with Crew. Uh, we have a young adult team going to South Africa. Maybe some of you are taking a trip or uh, engaging in local outreach this summer. If that's you, can you just put up your hand, and I want us to kind of rally around those people at your table. Uh, I'm going to close us out in a prayer and benediction. So if you could, just lay your hands on the people at your tables who are raising their hands. Uh, We're going to pray blessing. We're going to pray grace. Uh, Let's rally around each other uh, for a quick second, and then uh, then we'll dismiss here. But gracious God, we love you, and we love being yours. And we thank you that we are the people of God that have been ransomed uh, and brought into covenant relationship with you. Uh, so that we can live under your rule and your reign and live as the people of God in the fullest sense. 
so thank you for your redemptive work in our lives, and thank you that you have also made us ministers of reconciliation. So, Lord, we ask that this summer, as uh, various teams are going out, as individuals are going, taking uh, you know local uh, trips for missions, or going overseas, Lord, we pray that every single uh, work of missions, every proclamation of the gospel, everything that we give attention to this summer uh, to engage our local and world community uh, with the gospel and the witness of Jesus Christ. We pray that, Holy Spirit, you would move in power. We pray that your grace would be upon uh, each and every individual who are going. And we pray that as we go and uh, you're working through us, Lord, let the word of the gospel go forth and let there be souls that are led into the kingdom. Would you uh, beckon and woo others by your Holy Spirit into reconciled relationship with the Father? Uh, Lord, we pray that as we go out from here, would you bless each and every young adult? God, I pray that you would bless us and keep us, make your face to shine upon us and be gracious to us. Would you lift your countenance upon us all week long and give us peace? And we pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, amen.